1: and gentlemen, and welcome to Auntie Nanny. It's Monday night. It's actually just a couple minutes after six, but that's about how long the theme music is. And uh, it's another fun-filled episode of Auntie Nanny, full of the wacky hijinks and the jokes you've grown to love. Um, <laughs> I guess it's better than saying tonight's top story is the government, because um, it's not. But, um... Welcome to Auntie Nanny with the very best producer that money can't buy, because which is really good because I still don't pay him. Barry, how are you tonight, Barry? I, I see you get to see a debate.
2: See. Yes.
0: Yeah, yeah, <laughs> and 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 happy Alien Invasion Day to the Colonials. <laughs> yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah. <Well. laughs> uh, uh, tonight's refreshing repast is. Bowel buddy. Yep. Good lord. I'm assuming this pomegranate bowel buddy is a liquid uh, Oh, it's a it's a wafer.
0: Yes. Just to help your digestion.
1: I love at the top it says grenade. I, yeah. I know that's not what it means, but that is still funny. <laughs> <laughs> Uh yeah. So straight through you. Yeah. Apparently it does. So <laughs> sorry for the hijinks. Um when I got home today I had the worst migraine. I was like, I don't know if I'm gonna be able to do a show. I really want to do a show and it's my parents' anniversary. But it's Monday. This is what I do, this is my time slot, and here I am. I also want to apologize for if People who were looking forward to last week's uh, replay just got to see it yesterday. It got uploaded yesterday. very uh, and I don't really have a lot to do with that. But um, it's there now on SoundCloud if you want to look at it. Uh, and Yay. All right. Um, since I don't see Alex around and the last thing I saw was a picture of he and his wife eating poutine, uh, I guess I'm going to go through and do a kind of Kassa update for you guys you want to roll it okay Um, good evening and welcome to the Casa update for the week of seven for 2016 Um, first up is a story about Vermont Um, that effort to taxi cigarettes at the same 92 percent rate as regular tobacco products bell short in the legislature but as of July 1st those seeking an electronic nicotine fix i didn't write this guys will face the same restrictions as regular smokers i think it's kind of unfair i mean but if that's what they want to do that's what they're going to do says leanne denton of burlington a new ban bars e-cigarettes in offices hotel rooms restaurants designated smoke-free outdoor areas and motor vehicles carrying children required to ride in booster seats or car seats. Violators face a $100 fine. Um, I know that I don't like... Okay, this is a, another opinion. I know that I don't like e-cigarettes and people vaping inside because of the aroma. I just don't care for the aroma outside. I guess I'm less offended by it, says Susan kettle of Burlington. Oh, boy. Health impacts of vaping are unclear, and some studies have shown e-cigarettes can generate dangerous chemicals found in regular cigarettes. That's a flat-out lie. But many other users say they're a safer alternative, a tool for kicking habit. Michael Trombley of Barr is one of them. He says his smoking picked back up when his vape broke. With a vape pen, I just take a puff every now and then, he said. Uh, the new law prevents staff members at Garcia's tobacco shop from troubleshooting malfunctioning equipment in the store. And they can't simply step outside onto Church Street to test them because smoking is also banned along the shopping corridor. But because Champ Vapes in Burlington only sells vapes and related supplies, customers can continue quote-unquote smoking indoors there. Operators say they won't be affected much by the law until another aspect requiring products to be locked up or behind the counter takes effect next year. They're more concerned with any further regulation lawmakers and regulators may roll out in the future. Even with the new laws, vapes, vapors are unlikely to receive some leeway. Burlington police only issued five tickets for smoking in prohibited areas in all of 2015 and issued no written warnings. Spokespeople say they focused on verbal warnings and informing smokers on where they're allowed to let out. First of all, I think this um, confuses one with the other. right? It, It talks about smoking. It talks about vaping. It talks about both. Um. And it's mostly about vaping. But, you know, basically, in Vermont, there's now a vaping ban where there was a smoking ban. Um, In Mulnama County, um, starting Friday, July 1st, businesses selling tobacco, nicotine, or vaping products will need a new license from Malfama County. The new annual fee is $580 and covers any business, including convenience stores, bars, hotels, and restaurants. Uh, uh, although selling cigarettes to minors has been illegal for decades, so this is in Oregon. Oregon is one of the few states in the country that has no tobacco retail licensing and no way to hold businesses accountable. In November, county commissioners unanimously approved the licensing requirement after the state and federal survey showed that Multnomah County had some of the highest rates of illegal sales to children younger than 18 in the nation. During a federal compliance check in 2014, um, one in three Malthama County e- retailers illegally sold tobacco to children younger than 18. So, yeah. Um, and basically, if you want to sell vapor products, e-cigarettes, nicotine or tobacco products, you need to get a license there. Um, this there's been a lot of, I've noticed on social media, a lot of questions about this lawsuit. So I'm, I'm going to read this, and maybe it'll clear up some confusion. Judge grants e-liquid maker temporary restraining order and vaping case. One scorned e-liquid manufacturer will get a short reprieve from Indiana's new vaping laws, which effectively shut many players out of the market when the laws took effect on Friday. A federal judge on Thursday afternoon granted a temporary restraining order for Naples-based good cat llc and ordered the indiana alcohol and tobacco commission to grant it a provisional manufacturing permit so that it continued participating in the indiana market the order is set to expire in 14 days richard young chief judge for the u.s district court in the southern district of indiana wrote the order that good cat has a reasonable likelihood of success on the merits of its case against the vaping laws temporary restraining orders are essentially short-term injunctions before a trial happens GoodCat's lawsuit against the state, which was filed on June 20th, focused on the constitutionality of the law's stringent security firm requirements, which critics essentially said put one private Lafayette firm in charge of vetting security practices for all manufacturers permitted in Indiana. GoodCat sells its products in 200 Indiana retailers. The law set out a narrow set of rules for which security firms could qualify and then required all manufacturers to sign a five-year contract, they Qualified firm before they submitted applications to the state. Six of the seven e liquid manufacturers approved by the state used Lafayette based Malhopt as their security firm. IBJ reported June 18th that at least 30 national and local manufacturers tried to do business with Maputs, but many were unsuccessful, including Goodcat. The security firm said it was being choosy with whom it worked. Permitting Goodcat to continue essentially under the status quo for two weeks does not pose significant harm to the public interest, Young wrote in his order. Young has scheduled a hearing for July 11th to collect more information about the case. Good Cat is grateful for the temporary restraining order that will allow the e-liquid products manufacturers to, at least for now, remain on the shelves of Indiana retailers. Um, and I don't know. I've seen some pictures of what's going on in Indiana. It's heartbreaking. Business after business after business is just going under due to these insane restrictions. So, more on Indiana. Um, It looks like the gubernatorial candidate Rex Bell is questioning the vaping law. Um, He's the Libertarian candidate for governor, and he thinks that there's an overreaction by the state to these things, and. It's very funny when you read all the stories about them questioning people in the legislature. They're going, this wasn't how it was supposed to be. This isn't how it was intended. Well, it's what happened. And you drove good, honest, hardworking people out of business with your crazy zeal. So he says he wants to do something about it. I figured I'd let people know about that. Um, Also Highland Park, New Jersey, the Highland Park Boroughs Council approved an ordinance that finds electronic cigarette and vapor product retailers who sell to underage consumers. Any retailer found in violation will be subject to fines from fines ranging from $100 to $2,000. The ordinance, which took effect July 1st, also sets a $1,200 licensing fee for all vapor retailers. And New York Monroe County legislator Justin Wilcox introduced legislation that would require retailers to obtain a license to sell electronic cigarettes. The bill brings e-cigarette retailers in line with other tobacco retailers. The proposed legislation would require the license to be displayed in the store, bans the sales of e-cigarettes to minors, and prohibits stores from operating within a quarter mile from school. And I guess that's about it for this evening. Um, Thank you for listening, and thank you for your interest in Kasa. That was very strange. I'm sorry, that feels really weird to do that. It really does. So, now that that fun is out of the way, we can get to the big fun.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Big fun, and you don't mean the 80s pop band.
1: I don't. Um, No, unfortunately. Although, you know, I guess we could put some music on and just (laughs) talk. None of this stuff is particularly fun this evening. Oh, God. Um, So I really don't, when I talk about stuff, um, I I only like to talk about what I understand or what I can prove. Um, There's a publication I read quite a lot of called Who, What, Why? And they have some questions on what happened in Orlando, um, recently, (laughs) and it's actually pretty good. And I'm not going to read that here, but I'm just saying, if you also have questions about what happened in, and how it looks, go to who, what, why, and, and type in Orlando and some interesting stuff there. This is written by Radley Balco when it was written on June 14th. The Orlando shooting was not a vindication of police militarization. In the few days since the horrific mass shooting at the Pulse nightclub in Orlando, a number of pundits and law enforcement officials have cited the incident and the ensuring police response as vindication for the idea that we need to further militarize the United States police forces. Or More to the point, they're citing Orlando as proof that critics of police militarization are wrong. I'm a longtime critic of police militarization. I disagree. It's a pretty facile and simplistic way of looking at the issue. It gets the criticisms of police militarization wrong, it ignores the important context and subtlety, and perhaps most crucial, it doesn't accurately reflect what happened in Orlando. So here are a few responses to those critics. One, a few people think that SWAT teams shouldn't exist. I certainly don't believe that. I don't know of any proponent of police militarization critics who do. SWAT-like force is perfectly appropriate when the police are using violence to defuse an already violent situation. The problem is the vast majority of deployment of SWAT teams today are to serve search warrants with overwhelming force in an effort to catch a suspect off guard. Which is to say the vast majority of SWAT deployments today are creating violence, risk, and confrontation where there was none. Even that could be justified if these were, say, arrest warrants for escaped fugitives with a violent history, or even search warrants for events related to violent crimes, but that isn't the case. Most SWAT deployments are to serve search warrants for drug crimes. Here's another way to look at it. SWAT tactics are necessarily aggressive and violent and require a very low margin of error. There's a lot of risk involved in these operations to the SWAT officers, to the suspect, and to the bystanders. The tactics themselves are punishing by design. A SWAT deployment is essentially a legalized assault and battery. Flashbang grenades, which are often used during SWAT operations, are designed to inflict temporary injury on everyone near them. All that risk and violence is acceptable when it's being used to apprehend someone who is in the process of committing a violent crime and will continue to do so unless he's stopped. That risk is acceptable when not using a SWAT team almost certainly means more people will die it's more difficult to justify that level of risk and violence. When you're talking about searching the home of someone suspected of selling marijuana, here you're using overwhelming force and violence not to apprehend someone who's in the process of committing a violent crime, but to collect evidence against someone who is still only suspected of committing a nonviolent crime. While it's true that when used appropriately, SWAT teams can serve a useful purpose, it's also true that not every town and country in the United S- county in the United States needs one. At least 80% of towns with 35,000 or more people now have a SWAT team throwing sheriff's departments, task forces, state police, and most such towns are already served by several. Here's a good example that occurred about 90 miles from this weekend's shooting. A couple of years ago, a Tampa resident named Justin Westcott reported to police that someone had broken into his home and threatened him. The police tracked down the suspect, who they apparently already knew to be a dangerous person. A police officer advised Westcott, if someone breaks into this house, grab your gun and shoot to kill. A short time later, armed men broke into Westcott's home. It wasn't the man who threatened him. It was a Tampa SWAT team. They were serving a search warrant on Westcott based on a tip from a confidential informant that Westcott was selling marijuana. When Westcott grabbed his gun as the SWAT officers piled into his home, they shot him dead. The informant later said he lied about Westcott both voluntarily and then after pressure from police officers. The police found about $5 worth of pot in Westcott's home. But we can also look at Orlando itself, where there's a history of using paramilitary-style force to serve drug warrants. Back in 1998, an Orlando Weekly Investigation found that 47% of SWAT deployments in Orange County resulted in no arrests at all. A look at the surrounding counties produced similar results Nearly half of the SWAT deployments resulted in fines for misdemeanors or no charges at all. Of course, that was nearly 20 years ago. How about something more recent? In September 2014, the U.S. Court of Appeals for the 11th Circuit refused to toss out a lawsuit against the Orange County Sheriff's Office filed by the owners and customers of several Orlando-area barbershops, most of which were owned by Blacks or Latinos. It seems that the police suspected there was drug trafficking going on in these barbershops, but didn't have enough evidence to get a search warrant, which means they had very little evidence at all. So instead, the sheriff's office went to the Florida Department of Business and Professional Regulation, which oversees the licensure of the state's barbershops. I'll just quote from the opinion from there. It was a scene right out of a Hollywood movie. On August 21st, 2010, after more than a month of planning, teams from the Orange County Sheriff's Office descended on multiple target locations. They blocked the entrances and exits to the parking lot so no one could leave and no one could enter. When some team members dressed in ballistic vests and masks and with guns drawn, the deputies rushed into their target destination, handcuffed the stunned occupants and demanded to see their barber's licenses. The Orange County Sheriff's Office was using SWAT-like tactics to check haircutting licenses. Moreover, the opinion points out that in 2007, the same appeals court held that other deputies of the very same Orange County Sheriff's Office who participated in similar warrantless criminal raids under the guise of executing an administrative inspection were not entitled to qualified immunity. Because this discussion was invoked by an attack on a gay bar, it's worth noting that Atlanta SWAT recently paid a $1 million settlement after a 2009 SWAT-style raid on the Eagle, also a gay bar. Patrons were thrown to the ground at gunpoint, frist had their IDs confiscated, and their names entered into a database and were held for more than two hours, all based on unconfirmed tips about lewd behavior and unlicensed dancing. Some were handcuffed. Customers and employees reported that the officers mocked them and used homophobic slurs. The commanding officer of the raiding vice unit claimed the aggressive tactics were necessary because, in his experience, gay people are more violent than straight people. Sorry. <laughs> uh, I, there's, there's more, in it and I'll get to read more. I, 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 I do enjoy how gay people are more violent than straight people. Okay. That same year, police in Fort Worth launched a similar raid on a bar called the Rainbow Lounge that resulted in one customer being hospitalized for head injuries. The raid was conducted on June 28th, which also happened to be the 40th anniversary of the Stonewall Riots. The raid was officially an alcohol inspection and included agents from the Texas Alcoholic Beverage Commission. Three years earlier, a raid team stormed into a gay gym in Albuquerque. Patrons were forced to lie on the ground at gunpoint. Officially, the raid was due to suspicion that the gym was serving alcohol without a license. On the search warrant, the police claimed that high levels of force were necessary because the officers feared being sexually assaulted by the gym's customers. My God. Okay. The discussion about police militarization that came out of Ferguson and to a lesser extent after the Occupy protests stemmed from objections to police putting on an overwhelming show of force in response to protests. It's not only an intimidation tactic that threatens free expression. It isn't difficult to see how people might feel reluctant to express themselves while a cop in military garb points a sniper rifle at them. There's good evidence that when cops show up at a protest expecting violence, violence becomes inevitable. It's instantly confrontational, and it dehumanizes both sides of the protest line in the eyes of those on the other side. A city the size of Orlando should have a SWAT team. There's nothing inconsistent about believing both that and that SWAT teams and paramilitary-style SWAT-like tactics ought to be used appropriately. Objection number two. No one objects to Kevlar. I've seen lots of people on social media share a photo of the bullet-damaged helmet an Orlando police officer was wearing when he exchanged gunfire with suspected gunman, um, the fucking jackass. The photo has usually been accompanied by some comment about how this too refutes critics of police militarization, but it doesn't. No one objects to Kevlar helmets, bulletproof vests, or bulletproof vehicles. I know of no police militarization critics who think that police officers shouldn't use tools, drive vehicles or wear gear that protects them from bullets while apprehending dangerous people. And just as few critics of police militarization would call for the abolition of SWAT teams, few would argue that a city of Orlando size should have some armored bulletproof vehicles. The objection is more to gear like tracked vehicles with rotating gun turrets that shoot belt-fed 50 caliber bullets or to grenade launchers or to tiny towns across the United States acquiring behemoth mine-resistant trucks designed to protect against an improvised explosive device during convoys in Iraq and Afghanistan and that have no practical application in domestic policing. Imagery and mindset are important. There are two components of police militarization. There's the guns, gear, and gadgets, and then there's the mindset. The latter often gets overlooked, but it's a critically important concept for policing in a free society Police groups and their supporters will often look at a criticism of a callous, door-busting raid by a narcotics tax force or vice unit and object to classifying it as police militarization problems, because the tactics and gear don't strictly meet the definition of paramilitary, but it's still part of the larger problem of image and mindset. A cop's job is to protect the rights of his or her fellow citizens. A soldier's job is to kill foreign combatants. These are two extraordinarily different jobs and it's important that liberal societies keep them distinct. When cops start using the language of ground troops or in camouflage, when there's no real reason for it and talking about how they're at war with the people they're supposed to serve, they're adopting a military mindset and that's a dangerous thing in policing. So while few of those who are concerned about the police militarization object to the idea of armored cars, Kevlar helmets or ballistic body armor, the cosmetics are important. This is why the Obama administration barred the transfer of camouflage uniforms through the Pentagon's 1033 program. No, a pair of camouflage pants isn't going to kill anybody. It's more about how the officer who was put in those pants sees himself, his job, and his role in the community. Just as important, it's about how that officer is seen by the community he serves. People who defend the use of overtly militaristic gear say that projecting power and intimidation scares criminals into surrendering peacefully i doubt it when used properly the scare is deployed after someone is already in the process of committing a violent crime it seems unlikely that the shithead shooter would have surrendered if only he had known there was a scary looking armored vehicle outside the people are far more likely to be intimidated by the battlefield look are protesters cop watch groups and everyday citizens i've said before that i like the idea proposed by the Boston police department after Newtown that some police officers keep a high powered rifle in the trunks of their patrol cars. The first responder to a mass shooting is rarely the SWAT team. It's usually the nearest patrol officer. There's nothing wrong with being prepared. That's why they'd have the bigger guns, but we also have to remember and adhere to the values of a free society. That is why they'd keep them in the trunk and get them out only under a very narrow set of circumstances. Here's what actually happened in Orlando. In theory, the argument that an active shooter is precisely the sort of scenario for which a SWAT team is appropriate makes a lot of sense. In practice, it gets more complicated. In most cases, active shooter situations are over well before even an armed and ready SWAT team could possibly scramble to the scene, hence the point about patrol cops in the paragraph above. There have been few incidents in which the crime has drawn on, Um, The response from SWAT teams in those cases has been a mixed bag. The most notorious example is Columbine, where multiple SWAT teams were on the scene as Dylan Klebold and Eric Harris were still killing people. One SWAT team did enter the building about 45 minutes after the shooting began, but moved at an incredibly slow pace. It took them more than four hours to finally clear the building, during which teacher David Sanders bled to death. The Jefferson County Sheriff's Office later said the officers feared they were outgunned, they weren't, and that a dead police officer would not be able to help anyone. The other SWAT teams watched from the perimeter for hours, also having concluded it was too dangerous to go inside. More than two hours after the shooting began, some did eventually start to make their way into the building, but ended up frisking and marching out students and faculty instead of seeking out the gunmen. As SWAT teams continued to proliferate through the late 1990s and early 2000s, Columbine prompted the question, If SWAT teams outfitted with bulletproof gear and high-powered weapons won't apprehend active shooters in order to save lives out of fear for their own safety, what exactly is the point of having a SWAT team to serve drug warrants? There are also some criticisms after the Virginia Tech shootings. As the spree began, Virginia Tech already had its own tactical team on campus. The heavily armored campus SWAT team is also increasingly a common phenomenon. The University of Central Florida in Orlando has a grenade launcher and 23 M16s. The SWAT team was at the scene of the shooting in three minutes, but took an additional five minutes to enter the building. By that time, the shooter had killed 32 people plus himself. Again, this prompted the question, what's the point of having SWAT teams on campus if they can't respond in time to prevent an active shooter from killing 32 people? Again, the answer appears to be to serve drug warrants. There are also some counterexamples, though they don't involve SWAT teams. In both the Newtown and San Bernardino shootings, local police had been trained to immediately confront active shooters instead of waiting for the SWAT team to arrive. There's good evidence that in both cases, such training saved lives. The first responding officer to the Temple shooting in Wisconsin also quickly confronted the shooter. It isn't clear that he saved lives, but his bravery was heroic. In Orlando, three hours passed between the first shots In the time the SWAT team entered the building. In that time, the shooter shot more than 100 people, killing 49. Over the last few days, policing experts across the country, few of whom are opposed to police militarization more generally, have questioned that delay. Orlando officials have offered a couple of explanations. They said that after an initial round of shooting, including an exchange of gunfire with an early responding officer, The shooter took hostages in a bathroom at which point the scenario evolved from an active shooter to a hostage situation but once a shooter has shown a propensity to kill indiscriminately it seems odd to treat that person as a hostage taker who's open to negotiations mass shooters typically aren't looking for a helicopter and a satchel of unmarked bills most have already decided that they're going to die this is why so many police departments now train officers to confront shooters immediately according to orlando police The shooter himself made no real demands during their attempts to negotiate with him and said he just promised imminent loss of life. Okay, I need to take a drink. I'm sorry, this is very long. Here's what actually happened in Orlando. Okay, really? It goes on again. There's an attack. Sorry, I don't know what happened. Um, Orlando officials. Once a shooter. Just, I'm sorry. This is very long. Orlando officials have also claimed that they had reason to believe the shooter was armed with bombs, but one could argue that to delay entry as a shooter is killing people out of fear that he may detonate bombs values the lives of the heavily armed, heavily armored SWAT officers who assume some risk when they take the job are above the lives of the unarmed, unprotected victims. Are we ready to tell future mass shooters that if they can create even the illusion that they're carrying explosives, the police will give them free reign to kill as many people as their supply of ammunition will allow? Moreover, to the extent that bombs-slash-explosives explanation is somewhat persuasive, it also turns out not to have been true. It isn't clear yet how many people died between the time the SWAT team arrived and the time they forced entry. The police have suggested that nearly all of the shooter's victims were shot early. But that's also a self-serving assertion. If indeed confirmed that most or all of Mateen's victims were already dead by the time the SWAT team showed up, then the delay would seem to have been less harmful, at least in retrospect. That still wouldn't mean it was a smart approach. In any case, there's still a lot to learn. And as I'm sure many law enforcement officers and their supporters who might read this post will point out, it's easy for an opinion journalist, who's never won a badge, to respond to second guess the police decision in Orlando or to make presumptions about their willingness to risk their lives for the safety of this office. But other officer law law enforcement officials were the first to raise these questions. My point here isn't really to criticize the police response to the Orlando shooting. My point is that the Orlando shooting isn't within the realm of scenarios for which people criticize the police for being overly militarized and to the extent That is relevant to the discussion. It's an example of the limitations of SWAT teams, even in scenarios for which nearly everyone agrees, at least in principle, that they're appropriate. I'll leave it to the tactical experts to suss out whether police officials in Orlando made the right call. But whatever history decides about the tactics themselves, it wasn't anything close to a vindication of police militarization. Nor was it proof that critics of the trend are wrong.
0: Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, there's a lot wrong. I'll there... give you an example of British armed police.
2: Okay.
0: Uh, this, this is a close to home one. One of my uncles uh, pointed a shotgun up somebody's nose. I, I won't go into details. The armed response unit was called. It took them 20 minutes to travel 40 <laughs> miles and be kicking the door in. So, yeah, when when they say, oh, it took so many hours for the response to happen with these American SWAT teams, it's like, what were they doing? Really, what were they doing? In the UK, in in the Highlands, which is a big area, Uh our equivalent of a SWAT team travelled it's between 35 and 40 miles, Mm -hmm. and were ready to, and went in within 20 minutes, where there was a guy threatening somebody with a gun. (laughs)
1: well it's just it's it's weird i don't know any way to explain it i mean it wasn't story i wanted to start off with and i'm really sorry because people were expecting happy stuff for tonight uh that was not super happy but uh there's other stuff i did say i was going to talk about cookie dough oh and i will i will talk about cookie dough
0: oh yeah and and the other bit that yeah gay people really dangerous
1: i i thought i was going to when I read it the first time, I was like, "Okay, I, I, we have to talk about that this week because there's no reason not to, right?" Yeah. But is that not the most ridiculous thing you've ever, ever? I've never read anything so ridiculous. We had to life.
0: use a SWAT team. They, 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 might have like looked at me funny and <laughs> tried to fondle my, my bollocks. Um...
1: <laughs> it's just ridiculous. I mean. And the worst part is, I I know that was the reason I included the story, and I started reading, and I got to that part, and I was like, I'm stumbling over it because it's so ridiculous, I can't believe I'm reading it. Yeah. You know. Okay. Now, I said I was going to talk about the national debt. Here's a shocker. The national debt jumps nearly $100 in one day. Okay. The U.S. national debt is creeping up again. Creeping up.
2: $100
1: billion in one day is creeping up, huh? after holding steady for the last few months thanks to the annual flood of individual and corporate tax receipts. Total government debt hit a record of 19.38 trillion on Thursday, up nearly 98 billion from the day before. It's the first time it has ever exceeded $19.3 trillion. The debt will soar higher in the coming months and is expected to approach 20 trillion by the time President Obama leaves office. The total debt had been essentially flat since March when it hit $19.2 trillion. Growth in the national debt often slows or plateaus in the spring and early summer as tax receipts in April helped balance out federal spending that's on current pace to exceed receipts by $500 billion. The federal government collected a record high of $1.48 trillion in tax revenues in the first half of the year, which helped offset growth in the deficit over the last few months. Total public debt on Thursday was 19. Point, I'm sorry, 13.93 trillion, and government loans to itself are 5.45 trillion. Mm-hmm. Aside from tax receipts or lower spending, another way to reduce national debt is through gifts to the Treasury Department. But so far, the Treasury has received just 1.6 million dollars in gifts, and during the April tax season, people donated just 42 thousand dollars to the effort.
0: <laughs> now, see.
2: Go ahead.
0: Want, <laughs> the tax office accepts donations.
1: Yes, I know. Yeah, you know, pay, pay off the
0: government <laughs> debt.
1: Yeah, no, it was really awesome. Yeah. Here's
0: here's a thing for you. Yeah. Stop getting in debt, you assholes. <laughs>
1: you know, there's a lot of stuff they could do, like not testing how shrimp move on a treadmill. Yeah. That, that might save a little bit of money.
0: Well, one of the good ones, right, now, the, the report came out last week. Um, they found lots of new helium in Tanzania. Yes, they did. Which is great news. Yeah. But it's a bit of a shame for you in the USA. Because <laughs> cause, well, while the helium price is still high, you really need to get rid of the huge stockpile of it that Bush insisted you keep hold of.
1: Well, you know it's funny. You
0: you know about that, don't you? I do. The United States has something like eighty percent of the world's helium. Yeah, which what away in a military bunker somewhere. What's ridiculous?
1: Yeah, (laughs) in case in case we need to uh, have a really big
0: party. No, Uh,
1: in case we need to insert that into some politicians and send them on a holiday to the moon.
0: But yeah, because yeah, some some of the American government stockpiles which cost them a fortune in upkeep. Oh, I know, they're ridiculous. Yeah, they can just sell them. <laughs> it's, yeah. They they wouldn't have the upkeep cost, and well, they'd make the money from selling stuff.
1: Pretty sure the cost of a balloon, like you go to get a, a helium balloon for someone's yeah. birthday, pretty sure 90% of the cost of that is the helium, not the yeah. balloon itself. It is, yeah. So, you know, and I know what we pay for helium because one of my other jobs at work is to bring the vendor products in. Yeah. a tank of helium is ridiculously expensive yes so hopefully Especially
0: considering the amount of helium that's in it yeah
1: exactly <laughs> one of the most
0: expensive <laughs> products on the market the yeah helium yeah which is although great. as i say if they get this new helium field opened up the price will take a dump um yes but yeah the mm-hmm. some of the stockpiles you've got over there are impressive the 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 despite the oil price dumping, yeah, you'll still have that huge lake of fuel.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's for no true.
0: reason, which yet again Bush insisted. Well, was expanded it, even though they didn't need it.
1: Did he really? He must have needed some medical procedures that required helium. That's the only thing I can imagine.
0: Yeah.
1: Um. Okay. This is from Ars Technica. Cars Technica. All things automotive. And I would like to say um, there is no evidence that he was watching a film on a portable DVD player when this happened. So he was not paying attention. So he was one of those people that had a lot more faith in technology than I fucking do. Tesla's autopilot being investigated by the government following fatal crash. A tractor trailer crossed a divided highway and an auto piloted Model S drove underneath. The Model S uses several sets of sensors from optical to ultrasonic to radar to maintain awareness of the traffic around you. The National Highway Traffic Safety Administration is about to take a closer look at Tesla's autopilot, the company revealed on Thursday. In a blog post, Tesla says that it learned on Wednesday evening that the NHTSA's opening a preliminary evaluation into the performance of autopilot following a fatal crash involving a model s the incident which happened in may involved a white tractor trailer that was turning left across a divided highway perpendicular to the path of the tesla which was cruising on autopilot neither autopilot nor the driver noticed the white side of the trailer against a brightly lit sky so the brake was not applied the high ride deterrent of the trailer combined with its positioning across the road and extremely rare circumstances of impact caused the model s to pass under the trailer with the bottom of the trailer impacting the windshield with the model s the company also stated that the front on or rear end collision with the tractor trailer the outcome would not have ended in tragedy it described the driver as a friend to tesla and the broader EV community, and express sympathy for his friends and family for their loss. Although Tesla Autopilot is one of the very best semi-autonomous driving systems on the market, it is not designed for I love driving, and owners should be as vigilant on the roads as they would be in any other vehicle. So like I said, evidence looks like it's coming out that this guy was watching a DVD. Yeah. On a portable DVD player. I, I, You know... He was, as, as I
0: suspected, uh, like many Tesla owners, he's a moron.
1: <laughs> I don't know that he's a moron, but he was—he's someone who is friendly to and active in the field of computers. He was, uh, I believe, ex-military. He's someone who believes highly that AI is better for us than we are for ourselves. Um, and I think he might have been proven that as good as AI is, and it's proving to be pretty freaking impressive. It's winning games that people have played for thousands of years, making moves that people have never done that with. Um, it, it's creating friendly robots that check people in hospitals and robots that keep trying to escape Soviet Russia. Um, as good as AI is, it's not all that fantastic. You oh. still, There's still some things only human beings will know from instinct. And to trust your life to it is kind of ridiculous at this point. There's literally hundreds of films out there telling you why you should do it in the realm of science fiction. Um, you'd think one would at least stick with someone. Yeah. I guess not.
0: Yeah, uh, yeah, but but yeah, I I say he's an idiot because yes, if he was in a vehicle and he wasn't paying attention, he's an idiot. <laughs> uh, and I take a friend to test and in the broader EV community to mean he probably got a good discount on that vehicle. So yeah, yeah. when I see somebody say a good friend company name, I immediately think, all oh, right, yeah. yeah, he's he's got freebies off them, or he's given them money, or. Yeah. He was so.
1: involved in investing
2: or, yeah. As soon,
0: soon as I saw the story, before I'd actually, I knew the details, I, I immediately knew, yeah, bet yeah. It's some idiot has turned on the autopilot and gone, oh, well, I don't really need to pay attention now, and was doing I something think, else.
1: I think people, That's my
0: immediate thought, because any of the accidents with auto drive systems, that's yeah. what's happened.
1: Well, I think people give autopilot a lot more credit than it deserves, right? Um, That's just basic what I get from reading things like this. Because this sort of thing happens with autonomous machines more often than not. They kill a lot of people. Uh Because people believe that they know better. And machines. And that is not the truth. And I sound more and more like a Luddite every fucking week.
0: But look on the bright side, a Roomba is unlikely to do very much harm.
1: You say that, but do you have a cat? Because <laughs> <laughs> they scare the hey, shit hey, out of your cat. and and
0: you missed out the you missed out the robot Buddhist from your I, list.
1: No, I, I didn't miss out. on I just didn't. I don't know. I I am,
0: Robo I am monk. Yes. Yeah, a robot monk.
1: Yes. I am actually a Buddhist, so very centrist. And I'll I'll stick it in the chat so you guys can see bits it. of
0: the video are hilarious.
1: Um. It is
0: my favorite being you're not you're not supposed to touch a monk's bottom and <laughs> see now people have to watch the video to see what that's all about yeah,
1: yeah. <laughs> I've got to get to it, so where am I here you've probably you can probably find it quicker than me
0: uh, but
1: it wasn't hang on, oh, I'm in the wrong
0: should okay. still be in the Skype chat
1: yeah I have about eight hundred skype chats you know what's weird it's i wasn't in this one yeah. <laughs> sorry guys but it's it's pretty cute yeah the the video of the road robot through this month but
0: yeah i, I do I, like I'm still the...
1: not sure how I feel about that
0: yeah <laughs> i do i do like they don't you're not supposed to touch my bottom yeah it's like <laughs> It's like right, right. They've only managed to put some of the Buddhist stuff in it, but they managed to put in the don't touch my bottom stuff.
2: <laughs>
0: what did they get up to in that temple? <laughs> uh,
1: I think people are. But it's under- when
0: you watch the video and it's go, yeah, we've got like a couple of guys with PhDs in computing science and yeah. <laughs> yeah,
1: there are a lot of people involved in making robot monk. Um, oh, which well,
0: is- people forget that. Yeah. Buddhist monks. Anyone can go and join, basically. Well. So yeah, people have gone to university, had a nice little career, and then retire to being a monk, and create ro- robo monks. Okay. Um, <laughs>
1: someone to carry on after we've all gone away.
0: Yeah.
1: Um. Okay. I said we'd talk about national security letters. but.
0: Something. But yeah, it don't don't don't. Take your eyes off the road if you've got an autopilot in your car. I mean, that's the moral of the story.
1: It's planes have autopilots; they don't reduce... Planes the have autopilots, autopilots and
0: still insist on having two pilots. pilots. That tells exactly. you something.
1: That tells you something. <laughs> I mean, it's probably okay to watch the sky while the captain goes and uses the restroom. Yeah. I would assume. Probably not for much more than that. I'm no pilot. I wouldn't know. But I'm just saying, it. Uh, that's. Well, how I mean, it's, it's
0: proved. Yeah, I mean, aircraft autopilots much more technical than Tesla's one, and yes, yes um, a Virgin plane. Um, somebody did a video of it. Uh-huh. Take off to from, I think New York, landing in London. Uh-huh. All done with the autopilot. It can do it. It's just uh-huh. they don't like doing it. The pilots like... like to do the takeoff and landing bits. Yes. But yeah, you technically you don't actually need a pilot, but they do prefer to have pilots there just in case something the computer isn't ready for happens.
1: Because there Japanese
0: autos- trains are all autonomous. Right. But they right. still have train drivers.
1: Yes. <laughs> exactly. You know, there's a reason why you have a person. Who can put on the brake.
2: Yeah.
1: Um, and when you're when that person is you, you really should pay some sort of fucking attention. Just some. Not
0: none. And um, and we'll skip over the, the instance of airline pilots being asleep and missing their landings. And- God. Yeah.
2: <laughs> so-
1: yeah, I'm, I'm not saying that that doesn't happen, but they do work them a ridiculous amount because there are fewer of them because a lot of their job has been automated. My so it's a a vicious, sto- like.
0: My flatmate read a story about a pilot who was complaining about the hours he worked, uh-huh. whose commute to work was a two-hour drive.
2: Uh-huh.
0: So he'd drive two hours, fly for 16 hours, drive two hours home, Have to get back up again, not having had enough sleep, to drive two hours back the next day. You're like, and and the guy's complaining about his hours. It's like, move closer to your job, you dipshit.
2: (laughs) 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 No,
1: I agree. If you're making decent money and you can afford it, why wouldn't you do it? Okay, this is a story from Denver. I'm still really mad about this. Okay. City used homeless donations to assist with homeless sweep. A CBS4 investigation found that when city administrators were planning a March sweep, they immediately wanted to use donations that had been made to Denver's Road Home to assist the homeless population. In a series of emails obtained by CBS4, city officials from the mayor's office, Public Works, and host of other city agencies grappled behind the scenes with an anticipated bill of nearly $60,000 to pay an environmental charity to move, store, and redistribute personal property confiscated from homeless men and women during the sweep. Jose Cornu, the Executive Director of Denver Public Works, emailed his fellow city administrators February 11th, we do not have it in our budget, a line item, this extra cost to handle personal item storage and distribution. Brenda Hanlon, the City of Denver Chief Financial Officer, responded on February 12th, we can charge off these costs to the Homeless Donations Fund. The group email went to the mayor's chief of staff, Evan Dreyer, Cornejo, and several other ranking city officials. Sounds like a plan, wrote Cornejo, within an hour. The Homeless Donation Fund is part of Denver's Road Home, a city-managed and administered program which solicits donations, saying those public donations will be used to provide food, shelter, and counseling for Denver's homeless. Some of the money in the Homeless Donation Fund comes from donation meters set up around the city and Denver International Airport. People put their spare change in the meters to help the homeless. On the Denver Road Home website, the organization says the money put in the donation meters will be dedicated to mental health, substance abuse services in our community. At another spot on the Denver Road Home website, it says money put in the donation meters totals about $100,000 per year. and It's used for meals, job training, housing, and other programs to those in need. The DRH website states no money at all goes to the city of Denver. But according to invoices and work orders obtained by CBS4, city administrators earmarked $59,509.40 from the Homeless Donation Fund to pay an Arvada company for property removal and storage of belongings from the homeless. Well, I think it's appalling, said Denise Mass's public policy director for the American Civil Liberties Union, which has been staunchly opposed to homeless sweeps. People who give money to help the homeless believe their money is being spent the way they want it to be. This is clearly an abuse of the public trust. When CBS4 began asking questions about using donation dollars to evict the homeless, city officials put an immediate stop to what they were doing. Mayor Michael Hancock told CBS4, This was just one of those administrative snafus you picked up on, and we've already corrected it thanks to your investigation, and it's done and we move on. Hancock said he was unaware that donations had been used to help pay for the sweep until he learned of it from the CBS4 investigation. I don't think it was malintent on anyone's part, said the mayor. Someone may have looked at that fund and said, this seems appropriate, but when you called it to our attention, we took a closer look and it's been corrected. Sue Cobb, a spokesperson for the city, said the actual cost that was going to be drawn out of the homeless donation fund was $76,289.11. She said when CBS4 began asking questions, one I'm sorry, ten thousand seven hundred and forty dollars had already been paid out of the homeless donation fund to the Arvita contractor, Customer Environmental Services. But she said Denver's Public Works Department will repay that amount into the homeless donation fund and the balance of the cost will also be paid by public works. Although Hancock termed it an administrative snafu, Mays took a darker view. I certainly don't buy the fact that it's a mistake. You caught them. They say that doesn't look good. I think it's whitewashed, said masses. Alderman questioned what CBS4 found would make people less likely to donate to Denver's efforts to curb homelessness. If you have an administration using funds in a questionable way, of course you are going to decrease confidence in the process, says Alderman. Amber Miller, a spokesperson for Hancock, said it was important to note that only about 3% of the money in the homeless donation fund... Comes from public donations," she said. "The other ninety-seven percent is derived from federal funds. Well, so what if you have it earmarked for something? That's what you're supposed to use it for.
0: Yeah, the the reporter was right. It, it was it was not a it was not an innocent mistake.
2: No, and
0: of course And yeah, it was. anytime, anywhere, I see. Something like the DRH website stating no money at all goes to the city of Denver. My brain immediately goes, most How of this money is going to the city of Denver.
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly. <sighs> what are they using it for?
0: Yeah, they are going to use creative accountancy to make it look like they're spending on what they're supposed to be spending it on, but yep. actually, it's going to go to the you know directly yep. to some something else. Because well, that's what just, happens to homeless funds all over the
1: place. Which is just ridiculous. It, that really bothers me. I mean, there's not a lot of shit that bothers me, but, I mean, that really bothers me. Denver is a city where, you know, it's a pretty, parts of it are very nice. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. A lot of very nice people who have a lot of money live there. So it, it just seems disingenuous to me that the city would steal those funds.
0: And, and apparently there's plenty of things to do in Denver when you're dead.
1: <laughs> yeah apparently okay uh, god it's so hard to pick do I want to talk about the Philippine president who wants to help people killing them does that seem like a good one it's yeah. up to you <laughs> yeah oh why not It's before I start talking about journalists literally selling spots at the Democratic and Republican National Convention and start screaming I'll go something that bothers me a little bit less and it doesn't bother me a lot less it bothers me a little bit less all this stuff kind of bothers me this kind of bothers me a lot so yeah Do, 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 do. you realize the Radley Balco article was like 12 pages
2: yeah
1: it <laughs> was a lot So I'm kind of scrolling through that to get to this post I was talking about. New Philippine President Duarte vows deadly crime war. Philippine President Rodrigo Duarte, um, an authoritarian firebrand, was sworn in as the Philippines president Thursday and quickly launched a foul mouth vow to wipe out drug traffickers and even urged ordinary Filipinos to kill addicts. Duarte 71 won last month's election in a landslide after a campaign dominated by threats to kill tens of thousands of criminals in a relentless war on crime and tirades against the nation's elite that cast him as an incendiary anti-establishment hero. After a measured speech, after taking his oath before a small audience inside the presidential palace, the outspoken leader paid an evening visit to a Manila slum and unleashed a profanity-laden threat against drug traffickers in front of a crowd of about 500 people. These sons of whores are destroying our children. I warn you, don't go into that, even if you're a policeman, because I I will really kill you," the head of the state told the audience. If you know of any addicts, go ahead and kill them yourself, as getting their parents to do it would just be too painful. Duarte has previously alleged some police officers were engaged in drug trafficking. Repeating a favorite campaign refrain, the new president also said it would make good business sense to set up funeral parlors. I assure you won't go bankrupt. If your business slows, I will tell the police. Do it faster to help the people earn money. In his speech earlier at the Malacañang Presidential Palace, as he took over from Benigo Aquino, Duarte had given notice there would be indeed dark days during his six years in office the ride will be rough but come join me just the same duarte said in his remarks which opened with the familiar themes about the need to install discipline in a graft-infested society the problems that bedevil our country today which need to be addressed with urgency are corruption both in the high and low echelons in government criminality in the street and the rampant sale of drugs in all strata of the philippine society and the breakdown of law and order Duarte, a lawyer who earned a reputation as an authoritarian figure as the mayor of the southern city of Davao over most of the past two decades, said these problems were symptoms of an eroding Filipino faith in their leaders. He had previously outlined a vision for his anti-crime program that included reintroducing the death penalty with hanging as his preferred method of execution. He said he would issue shoot-to-kill orders to the security services and offer them bounties for the bodies of drug dealers. He also urged ordinary Filipinos to kill suspected criminals. During the campaign, Duarte said 100,000 people would die in his crackdown, with so many dead bodies dumped in the Manila Bay that the fish there would grow fat from feeding on them. He has been accused of links to vigilante death squads in Davao, which rights groups say have killed more than 1,000 people. Such groups are concerned that extrajudicial killings could spread across the Philippines under him. With a police crackdown following his election, already leaving dozens of people dead. I know what's legal, Duarte said at the presidential palace on Thursday. His fight against crime would be relentless and sustained, as he called on human rights monitors and critics in Congress to respect the mandate the Philippine people had given him. But he also insisted he would work within the boundaries of the law. As a lawyer and former prosecutor, I know the limits of power and authority of the president. I know what's legal and what's not. My adherence to due process and the rule of law is uncompromising, he said. Duarte also sought to portray himself as a unifying figure. I was elected to the presidency to serve the entire country. I was not elected to serve the interests of any person or any group or any one class, Duarte said. During the election campaign, Duarte picked fights with the envoys of key allies, his key allies of the United States and Australia, after they criticized his joke about wanting to rape a beautiful Australian, Australian state uh, missionary, okay, wanting to rape a beautiful Austrian missionary who was sexually assaulted and killed in a Davo prison riot. After his election win, Duarte also launched a seemingly unprovoked attack against the United Nations. Oh, fuck you, UN, you can't even solve the Middle East carnage, couldn't lift a finger in Africa with the butchering of the black people, shut up all of you, he said. On Thursday, Duarte offered a muted message of friendship to the international community, on the international front and in the community of nations. Let me reiterate that the Republic of the Philippines will honor treaties and international obligations. He said, "Holy shit, the guy's Trump."
0: Um, I think yeah, I think he's, pos- <laughs> they, he's possibly they have worse. managed to find somebody worse. <laughs> it's impressive. I know. Uh, I
1: thought that was just really...
0: And <coughs> the 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 change in tone on his rants, he's at he's at the very least bipolar. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, if he starts his war on crime that he's asking, I'm, I wonder how many pieces he'll be found in.
1: <laughs> I don't know.
0: Because you, you, you'll know a bit of the history of the Philippines, quite close ties to the US. Um,
1: yes.
0: Yeah, the criminal gangs there are really, really well armed.
1: I think the um, idea of...
0: I, telling, I think he's going to be found in pieces in his office some morning.
1: He might be, but I mean, just the idea, what freaked me out, what made me share the story was the story about killing addicts. Yeah.
0: But, but yeah, he says, I will work within the boundaries of the law. Yeah, that's why he's asking normal people to kill addicts, because he's oh, yeah. not allowed to.
1: And and telling... But so if, if
0: somebody stuff. else does it, it's fine. Yeah.
1: It's not just me. I mean, yeah. I. Oh, he's in the that guy case. sounds yeah. unhinged. Yeah. He sounds
0: unhinged. I'll say at the very least, bipolar. Uh, probably uh, a lot worse.
1: I don't even know. But Jesus, when, you know, there's not a lot of people that would make me wish for our vice president to run their country, you know. But even our vice president seems like a better choice than this guy in some ways.
0: Well, yeah, the, the appearances of this guy, you've got to think a lot of Filipinos will be missing the Marcos days.
2: <laughs> yeah. Okay. I
0: mean, Marcos killed a lot of people, but he didn't, at least he didn't rant about doing it in public. Uh,
1: <laughs> <laughs> it, it's, it's a scary fucking world out there. Um, okay, I so we talk about what a national security letter... This comes from, I believe um, this is from the intercept, but pretty sure it's not just from the intercept, so hang on. Um, yeah, it's Freedom of the Press blog. Um, Freedom of the Press is actually a decent group of people who actually do you know journalistic investigation and have some personal integrity. So, I'm going to read that.
2: Okay.
1: Leaked FBI documents reveal secret rules for spying on journalists with national security letters. Today, The Intercept published leaked documents that contain the FBI's secret rules for targeting journalists and sources within the national security letters. The controversial and unconstitutional warrantless tool the FBI uses to conduct surveillance without any court supervision whatsoever. Freedom of the Press Foundation has been suing the Justice Department under the Freedom of Information Act for these secret rules for the past year. Just two weeks ago, a coalition of three dozen news organizations, including the New York Times and the Associated Press, demanded the Department of Justice release them. The Department of Justice so far has refused. The leaked rules, The Intercept, published, gives us a revealing and startling look at how the FBI can conduct surveillance of journalists in complete secrecy and with no court oversight. First, the rules clearly indicate in two separate places that NSLs can specifically be used to conduct surveillance on reporters and sources in link investigations. This is quite disturbing since the Justice Department spent two years trying to convince the public it updated its media guidelines to create a very high and restrictive bar for when and how they could spy on journalists using regular subpoenas and court orders. The leaked rules prove that the FBI and DOJ can completely circumvent the media guidelines and just use a national security letter in total secrecy. Second, the Department of Justice told the New York Times in 2003, despite NSLs being exempt from the media guidelines, they were still used under a strict legal regime. Well, the strict legal regime here is basically non-existent. The only extra step the SBI has to go through to spy on journalists with an NSL, besides the normal lax NSL procedures, which they have flagrantly and repeatedly violated over the past decade, is essentially get the sign-off of a supervisor in the Justice Department. That's it. They don't even have to go through the motions for following any of the several rules laid out in the DOJ media guidelines, like get the Attorney General to sign off, exhaust all other means of investigation, Alerting and negotiating with the affected media organization, making sure that what is being sought is essential to the investigation, etc. The leaked rolls from the classified annex of the FBI's Domestic Investigations and Operations Guide. The guide itself is dated 2011, though the particular section was active as of at least 2013. A redacted version of this guide is available on the FBI's website, but their version censors virtually all the rules themselves documents previously released in the lawsuit indicate these rules may have been updated in the past two years the leaked rules from 2013 state in part if the nsl is seeking the telephone toll records of an individual who is a member of the news media or news organization and a purpose of the nsl is to identify confidential news media sources the general counsel and EAD NSB, after consultation with the Assistant Attorney General for the National Security Division, must approve the NSL. Given that virtually all leak investigations and its journalists relate to stories published about national security, it makes a mockery of the media guidelines that the Department of Justice repeatedly say restricts its agents and prosecutors. The other major question here is why these rules. Why are these rules secret in the first place? The information that has been redacted here by the Justice Department in which they're fighting to keep secret in court is incredibly mundane. The fact that the FBI has to get another person in the bureaucracy to sign off on a particular investigation should not be a state secret, nor would it remotely harm any ongoing investigation, nor would tip off any alleged criminals on how to evade surveillance. And the only real reason to keep these rules secret, it seems, is that it's incredibly embarrassing for the FBI to admit they can use NSLs in leak cases to go after journalists the FBI and DOJ are keeping these rules is outrageous and they should use this opportunity to officially release the rules and any updates to them immediately. Congress is now engaged in a debate to dramatically expand the FBI's use of national security letters. This is yet another reason why they should not only reject that dangerous proposal but revoke the FBI's NSL powers altogether. It's crazy. It's
0: just crazy. you. Yeah. They're so obsessed with secrecy that they want to keep everything secret. Everything. Apart from everybody else's stuff, obviously. (laughs) Um,
1: Yeah, it's just kind of crazy. I've never been able to understand how they can do that. And I definitely have some other NSL stuff I want to talk about. Um, Yahoo Publish is one of the FBI's most secretive tricks to get user info. Now you can read some of the FBI's national security letters. One of the FBI's most secretive tactics under which it's allowed to send a tech company a letter that demands its data on a user and then force that company to stay quiet about the whole thing is now a lot more public. Yahoo has, for the first time, published three national security letters. NSLs are used by the FBI to get information And they're particularly controversial because they don't require a warrant or allow recipient to acknowledge them. So, I mean, that in itself is a real problem for people. Um, Thanks to the USA Freedom Act, signed into law almost exactly a year ago, the FBI periodically must reconfirm that an NSL gag order is still relevant. The fact that Yahoo published these three, indicates that the nsls refer to cases that have been concluded only a handful of the nsls have ever been published meaning it's impossible for the public to have a good sense of how often they're sent the three letters follow a clear pattern the first are dated march 29th and august 1st of 2013 and both are by agents in dallas the third was sent just may 29th 2015 by an agent in charlotte north carolina All three ask for information on a single, presumably different owner of a Yahoo.com email address. Our understanding is that the vast majority of NSLs of these kind are issued to go to tech companies, and that's a basic tool the FBI uses to start investigations involving people's communications, Andrew Cocker, a staff attorney at the Electronic Frontier Foundation, told Boactive. He added that there are other standard forms of NSLs for other industries like banks and travel agencies. <clears throat> What's most revealing about the Yahoo letters is the scope of information they demand all ask for electronic communications, transactional records, which is to be expected from an NSL, but each letter includes an attachment showing just what the phrase is supposed to mean, something that hasn't been public since a controversial NSL from 2004. In short, it's practically anything the FBI could consider metadata, as asking for a user's actual email or chats would require a warrant. Everything else, though, is fair game. And this includes the dates an account opened, the IP address used to log in, any physical address or phone number associated with the account, the credit card number it used to pay for any service, any listed aliases, pretty much anything a user gives when they create an account. Metadata also includes email header information. So with whom an account was communicating along with the associated by subject line. Each one, essentially all information, save the actual content of emails to chats associated with a single Yahoo email address. Presumably, they were different addresses, though the account name is redacted in each case. Further down, the letter details the extent to which Yahoo is instructed to act as if nothing has happened. While fulfilling your obligations under this letter, please do not disable, suspend, lock, cancel, or interrupt service to the above described subscriber or accounts. A Service interruption or degradation may alert subscribers and account users that investigative action is being taken. It further prohibits anyone with knowledge of the letter from disclosing the letter other than to those whom disclosure is necessary to comply. Mm -hmm. Apple, widely credited as a giant tech company that fights for its users' privacy, admitted in its most recent transparency report that a category of government requests it called national security orders, which includes NSLs, had sharply risen in 2015. But Yahoo, too, has made principled standards for its customers. In 2014, news broke that it only began complying with NSA's controversial prison program in 2008 after extensive legal fighting and being threatened with a $25,000 a day fine. So, yeah. um, Somebody shared something pretty interesting with me yesterday. and mm-hmm. I should Facebook, for lack of a better place to put it, but it's about surveillance in America and uh, how common it's been for how long. Like, this is not a new issue at all, at all, at all. Um, It goes back much further than you think, and it's, I don't want to say it's a normal part of our history because it's not at all. It shouldn't be. But, um, there's a timeline there of just different agencies and how they started, and when they started spying on people and groups of people they started spying on that's it's it's a very interesting read through and I stuck it in the chat so uh, and it's updated quite frequently, <laughs> mm-hmm. which is helpful but surveillance is what governments do yes um the f- fact that it's not outside of our borders, I find disturbing. The fact that it's on people
0: fear. Be fair, it's not just it's the government. Corporations are doing it now, too.
1: Yes. Well, corporations probably do it better because they seem to be able to talk people into giving up their information for free. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. You know. And mm-hmm. I don't think that the surveillance state ever got quite as lucky as they did when people started carrying phones around in their pockets, right? Because that made them easy targets, easy to spy
0: on. No, no, no. The biggest one is still Facebook and the other social media, where people are freely giving loads of personal information 24 hours a day that anyone can go and read. It's a gift to a government, that.
1: Okay, so I said we'd talk about cookie dough. Let's talk cookie dough. The FDA's abstinence-only approach to eating cookie dough is unrealistic and alarmist. I'd agree with that. Uh, This week, the Food and Drug Administration issued a consumer update warning Americans not to eat or even touch raw cookie dough, bread dough, or cake batter. The Administration's concern is not salmonella and raw eggs, which, as I wrote in 2014, has always been rare and has gotten even rarer in recent decades. Instead, the FDA wants us to worry about uncooked flour, which can harbor dangerous bacteria like E. coli. The bottom line for you and your kids is donate raw dough, warns the agency. And even though there are websites devoted to flour crafts, don't give your kids raw dough or baking mixes that contain flour to play with. Should you really throw out your homemade Play-Doh, swear off licking the spoon, and tear up your recipe for cookie dough billionaire bars? Many of the media companies have passed along the FDA's message, say the answer is yes. FDA ruins raw cookie dough for everybody, wrote the New York Times. Cookie dough is really bad for you, says the FDA, said Salon, distorting the message somewhat. I can no longer recommend raw cookie dough in good conscience, allowed Gawker's Hudson's Hongo mournfully. But a closer look at the reason behind the FDA's recommendation reveals they might, just maybe, be exaggerating the risks of raw cookie dough. The FDA issued the warning after investigating an outbreak of a virulent strain of E. coli linked to a batch of flour produced in a General Mills facility in Kansas City, Missouri. The affected flour, which has since been recalled, is sold under the brand name Gold Medal Signature Kitchens and Gold Medal Wondra. 42 people in 21 states have contracted flour-length E. coli since December. No one has died, and yet the FDA's response is to tell everyone all 319 million Americans not to eat any uncooked flour whatsoever. By comparison, the Chipotle E. coli outbreaks affected 60 people in 14 states, and the FDA didn't respond by telling people not to eat a Chipotle. All it said was consumers who have recently become ill after eating at a Chipotle should contact their health care provider. This was a reasonable recommendation that also probably reflects the political hazards to a government agency bashing a particular company. It's not particularly hazardous for a government agency to bash cookie dough. Cookie dough does not have any lobbyists or lawyers on retainer, but the fact remains that people eat raw cookie dough always have, always will, and the FBA, FTA's abstinence only response is both unrealistic and unnecessarily alarmist. You should educate yourself about the effects of raw flour and make your own decision about whether they're acceptable, instead of letting the FDA's gloom and doom warnings automatically scare you away from one of life's most delicious traits. Here's the deal. flour comes from wheat grown in fields where it's vulnerable to being pooped on by animals, or as the FDA euphemistically put it, if an animal heeds the call of nature in the field, bacteria from the animal waste could contaminate the grain, which is then harvested and milled into flour. Most of the bacteria in the animal poop is not going to hurt you, but occasionally, a nasty strain like E. coli O121, the strain associated with the recent flower recall, can find its way into a bag of flour, or virtually any other food that comes from a field for that matter. When you bake foods containing flour for long enough, you kill any bacteria that might be lingering in the flour. When you consume uncooked dough, you potentially expose yourself to infection, especially if you are elderly, a child, or have a compromised immune system for some other reason. And yet, the vast, vast majority of people who consume or touch uncooked flour do not contact E. coli or any other infection. The current outbreak is, in the grand scheme of things, very small. It's true that the potential effects of an E. coli infection are horrifying. Google Hawker's Hongo tells the story of Linda Riviera, a Las Vegas woman who suffered brain damage, lost part of her large intestine, and eventually died after contracting E. coli from cookie dough in 2009. But your risk of ever contracting E. coli, whether from a spoonful of cake batter, or a chipotle burrito, or a spinach salad, or some other foodborne source, remains minuscule hunger rights. Raw cookie dough is delicious, and compared to, say, driving a car every day, not especially risky. Still, it's probably not worth it, as Riviera said, given the potential severity of the illness. Is driving a car not worth it? After given the potential severity of injury, some people will draw that conclusion and not drive, and that's their prerogative. Similarly, some people look at the potential effects of E. coli and not eat anything containing uncooked flour, but other people will conclude the relatively minuscule risk of contracting E. coli from the raw cookie dough or chipotle burrito or alfalfa sprouts or rotisserie chicken salad or spinach is an acceptable trade-off, given the joy these products bring into their lives. Life is dangerous. Grave illness, injury, and death may lurk behind every corner and could affect any one of us at any moment. By all means, everyone should immediately throw out the General Mills flours that have been recalled and probably avoid consuming any uncooked General Mills flours until the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention declares the outbreak over. But the fact remains, the vast majority of flour is not contaminated with E. coli. Instead of tarring all uncooked flour and trying to dissuade us from partaking in one of life's greatest joys, the FDA should focus on making sure the flour manufacturers follow food safety best practices to prevent contamination. The FDA is better off focusing on keeping our food supply safe, not exaggerating risks to make us all feel less safe than we actually are. There are so many ways to take that story.
0: Thoughts? Well, I I look at it as the FDA jumped on a bandwagon there. Uh, (laughs) E. coli, dangerous. Well, Hang hang on, hang on, hang on. (laughs) What about bacillus cereus? Yes. Far more common in uncooked um, flowers, rice mm-hmm. vegetables than E. coli has ever been weren't they talking about that? Because it kills know. people too
1: You know, I okay, don't know much
0: but... More rarely it kills people but
1: <laughs> right, loads but I mean... of people
0: get ill from Bacillus serious, but where's their big campaign about that?
1: <sighs> I don't know but I've got to tell you what I was thinking is how this related to baby Yeah When I read this because it's exactly what they did they jumped on a hysterical bandwagon and started exaggerating and overhyping and making things sound so much worse than they actually are this is what they do now this is how they justify their jobs I guess which is ridiculous I mean I guess what I took away from that story is old people and little kids shouldn't eat raw cookies I
0: guess. Right, right. Here's here's a, here's a an excerpt about Bacillus cereus, just okay. for comparison. Uh, in 2010's examination of warning letters issued by the US FDA, issued to pharmaceutical mar- manufacturing facilities, addressing facility micro- microbial contamination, okay. revealed that the most common contaminant was Bacillus cereus. There you go. It's all <laughs> over the place. But yeah. One of the, what yeah are jump the most, on E. coli because a of couple most, of people got ill recently on it. Yeah. One
1: of the most... Dis- I can't use Neosporin anymore.
0: Yeah.
1: And I can't use Neosporin anymore because I've always been a news junkie. I'll always be a news junkie. Damn it, Dad, what'd you do to me? Yeah. <laughs> Um, And I remember following the Forbes story years and years ago about a woman who worked for the government and was investigating Johnson & Johnson, who somehow is tied to making Neosporin. Um, I'm pretty sure it's a Johnson & Johnson subsidiary of some kind. But anyway, uh, all these facilities, they were disgusting, right? They had none of the safety protocols that you normally see in place. Everything was gross. She was a government inspector, in fact, at the time. And she went in, and they didn't have, they're mixing batches, the spade. Do you know what I'm talking about? The middle spade part that turns the stuff in the batches was broken. So to stir it, people were jumping into the vat and swimming around in it. Was like one of the worst things, and and that image always stuck with me. And she had to fight the government tooth and nail to expose this. And I don't think anything really happened. They kind of got a slap on the wrist, and none of the Neosporin or anything ever got recalled. That has always stuck with me. Yeah. You know, it's just it's fucking disgusting. And the, if they actually... the
0: corruption in the layers of government and uh, oversight in the U.S. is horrific if people look into it.
1: Well, if they're really dead There's always
0: regulations, but the regulations aren't actually for the companies. The regulations are just...
1: To handicap to, other To show companies.
0: the public, yeah, okay. yeah, we're in charge. Yeah.
1: Well, what I was going to say is this coming from a man who lives in a country that has 100 regulations for pillows. Yeah. yeah you would know better than me how many of those affect your health
0: and safety? I used to be a fire health and safety officer, and I used and to work in a in a restaurant, so I know all about risk okay. assessments, fire safety, health and safety, safe moving and handling, you know, for right. carrying stuff around, sure. uh, and all the hygiene stuff. So, yeah, yeah. Yeah, there are a lot of regulations, but at least the ones over here... Are actually enforced uh, at all levels. When people get caught not following the rules, their businesses get closed. <laughs> well, Whereas in the U.S., as you say, the inspectors go round and nothing seems to happen.
2: Yeah. Well. Well, I mean, for
0: instance, you'll you'll you may have seen Ramsey's kitchen nightmares and yeah. some of the U.S. ones. You know, cockroaches oh, running around bad. and all that kind of they're stuff. So bad. If that had happened in the UK, uh, even if it had been seen on film, inspectors would have been round handing out notices, going "You're closed until you improve are clean."
1: Well, I mean, in that I've
0: seen it happen over here, you know. And there's, um, if you if you live in a one of the bigger cities in the UK, mm-hmm. the councils keep a register of the hygiene records. ...of all the restaurants. Right. So you can go look up... uh, I want to go and eat in such and such a restaurant. You can go and look up the restaurant... ...and see how how they did in the last hygiene inspection. We've we've got that that
1: too. And like one of the most popular restaurants in my town... ...has had so many critical violations... ...that I want to vomit when we go by it... ...in the car. And I'm like, I can't imagine people actually eat at this fucking
0: place. Well, yeah. I mean, over here... ...one bad inspection is enough to close a restaurant. Oh, If if you get to two, that's not opening again. No, no. (laughs) It
1: it closed in the middle of feeding people and they had to like bleach, basically bleach the entire place. Well, not even bleach. I'm pretty sure they had to use other stuff, but
0: yeah. um, Once a year we used to have a a company come in to do a deep cleaning of the kitchen. And what a deep cleaning is is basically spraying everything with quite strong acid and strip a layer off all the surfaces after of, of all the work counters because you know they're all stainless steel. Sure. Work areas, but yeah, it's basically an acid treatment that basically strips the the surface layer off the metal. Well, and I mean, that's done we, once a year just to make sure. Well, no bacteria you kind of need around. to it,
1: yeah. because a lot of the food the food stuff just like lingers in so it's just impossible to get out yeah.
0: well the yeah. surfaces get scratched yes exactly so, yeah so they come in and basically strip the surface off completely and,
1: you know the last thing you want to deal mm. with is a listeria outbreak oh my god that is that is awful and lingering and goes on and on and it's listeria is pretty hard to kill
0: yes most so. most of the foodborne bacteria is incredibly hard to get rid of once once an area is infected with it. Mm-hmm. Still better than uh, Norwalk. Um, yeah, well, Norwalk. Which is just bad. horrific. Um.
1: Yeah, Norwalk virus is really bad. Uh, it's almost, I mean, it's not quite... Legionella is bad, and it's pretty much everywhere.
0: Yeah, it's all, it, very few serious outbreaks in in the Western world not now. Though. really...
1: They're a lot better with cleaning techniques and stuff, but you know. Well, I mean,
0: even even um, making sure water heaters heat water sufficiently gets rid of um, sure. legionella. So yeah, that's that's the biggest cause it was stagnant well water stagnating at yeah. good uh, bacteria breeding levels instead of being hot enough to actually kill the bacteria because yeah one um another thing working in hotels yeah one of the things we had to do was random checks of taps and shower heads in Uh the building to make sure the water was reaching the minimum safe temperature
1: i mean you know you have to um okay I don't know if you can see where I am in the show notes, but I'm gonna read this. <laughs> How EU overreach pushed Britain out, and you had to know I was gonna read it. Oh yeah. I have to know I'm gonna read the the Scotland story too. <laughs> How EU overreach pushed Britain out, and this comes from Project Syndicate, Cambridge. A thoughtful British friend of mine said to me a few days before the United Kingdom's Brexit referendum that he would vote for Maine because of his concern about the economic uncertainty that would follow if the UK left the European Union, but he added he would not have favored British decision to join the EU back in 1973 had he known how the EU would evolve. While voters chose leave for a variety of reasons, many were concerned with the extent to which the EU leaders have extended their original mandate creating an even larger and more invasive organization. Jean Monnet's dream of a United States of Europe was not what the British wanted when they joined the EU 40 years ago, nor were they seeking a European counterweight to the United States as Conrad Ardour, Germany's first post-war chancellor, had once advocated. Britain simply wanted the advantages of increased trade and labor market integration with countries across the British Channel. The EU began as an agreement among six countries to achieve free trading goods and capital and to eliminate barriers to labor mobility. When EU leaders sought to reintrodu- reinforce a sense of European solidarity by establishing a monetary union, Britain was fortunately able to opt out and keep the pound and control over its monetary policy, but the opt out has left Britain a relative outsider within the EU. As the EU expanded, From six countries to 28, Britain could not permanently limit entry to its labor market by workers from new member states. As a result, the number of foreign-born workers in Britain has doubled since 1993 to more than 6 million, or 10% of the labor force, with most now coming from low-wage countries that were not among the EU's original members. Although pro-Brexit voters worried about the resulting pressure on UK wages, they generally did not reject the original goals of increased trade and capital flows that are the essence of globalization. Some Brexit defenders could point to the example of the successful U.S. trade agreement with Canada and Mexico, which contains no provision for labor mobility. Unlike Britain, the other EU countries, led by France and Germany, wanted more than free trade and an enlarged labor market. From the start, European leaders were determined to expand the, quote, European project to achieve what the Treaty of Rome called an ever closer union. Advocates of shifting authority to EU institutions have justified this with the notion of shared sovereignty, according to which British sovereignty could be eroded by EU decisions without any formal agreement from the UK government or people. The Sustainability and Growth Pact of 1998 imposed a limit on member countries' annual deficits and required that a debt-to-GDP ratio shrink towards a maximum of 60%. When the global financial crisis began in 2008, German Chancellor Angela Merkel saw an opportunity to strengthen the EU even further by enforcing a new fiscal compact, authorizing the European Commission to oversee members' annual budgets and impose fines for violating budget and debt targets, though no fines have been levied. Germany also led the move to establish a European banking union a single regulatory framework and a binding resolution mechanism for troubled financial institutions. Not all of these policies directly affected the UK. Nonetheless, they widened the intellectual and political gap between Britain and the EU Eurozone members. That reinforced the fundamental difference between market-oriented British government and those of many EU countries with their traditions of socialism, government planning, and heavy regulation. The division of powers between the EU bureaucracy and member states is governed by the ambiguous principle borrowed from the Catholic social teaching of subsidiary. Decisions should be made at the lowest or at least centralized level of competent authority. In practice, that did not limit the rulemaking in Brussels and Strasbourg. Subsidiary provides much less protection for EU member governments than the Tenth Amendment of the US Constitution which denies to the federal government any powers not delegated to it by the Constitution um, does for U.S. states. The British public is, of course, not alone in its discomfort with the EU. A recent poll conducted in EU countries by the Pew Foundation found that a majority of voters in three of the largest countries, Britain, France, and Spain, view the EU unfavorably. In Germany, the public was split 50-50. In Italy, a clear majority say they have benefited from EU membership, and yet the populist five-star movement, which recently won mayoral elections in 19 of the 20 cities it contested, including 70% of the vote in Rome, has promised a referendum on leaving the Eurozone if it wins parliamentary elections later this year. Although many officials and experts predict that Brexit will now have dire economic consequences, this certainly is not inevitable. Much now depends on the future relationship between the EU and Britain. The UK is also now in a better position to negotiate a more favorable trade and investment treaty with the US. Although the proposed US-EU Transatlantic Trade and Investment Partnership is bogged down, a British government outside the EU could negotiate a deal with the US far more easily. The US would be negotiating with one country, not 28, many of which do not share Britain's pro-market policies. The question of Britain's EU membership has been decided. Now, its economic future depends on what it does with its new independence. So it's it looked pretty fucking awful on Facebook. You've got <laughs> young people screaming at old people and calling them bastards and yelling at them for selling away their future. And I don't, I don't know. I mean, I guess these are people who—they're who so
0: with young, you know. They're they they just over emotional. So just, you know once they grow up, you know they'll, they'll calm down a bit and
1: yeah. i I don't know <laughs> most of the people who turned out to vote were older,
0: yes.
1: and it seems to me if they really wanted to have a say, they would have turned out themselves instead of waiting and then reacting
0: well you see it, it wasn't on it wasn't on Snapchat, so you know <laughs> they couldn't be bothered. <sighs>
1: I guess, but I just thought that was interesting. It's it's not. I definitely don't really see that talked about like ever. You know what I mean? Yeah. That.
0: Oh well, yeah, I is... You can't. I mean, the rest of the media basically put it down to racism, xenophobia, immigration. Yeah.
1: How do you know? Mo- most, most
0: of the mo- yeah, most people did not vote based on that. Yes, a lot did, but yeah, it's it's the it's the faceless bureaucracy bit that loads of people well for yeah. you know, exit yeah. because of well that and shafting the the uh, establishment. You
1: know, it the <laughs> remaining is great if you're a business. Not well, so
0: great. Remaining's good if you're a business that does a lot of business in Europe. Yeah. Remaining is still terrible if you're a company that mainly does fully international trade. Because yeah, Cause yeah all, all all the companies that, that were for leaving or didn't express an opinion were all really large companies. JCB, <laughs> who you may have heard of.
2: Yes.
0: The, the owners of JCB wanted to leave because they're like it's not going to affect us at all either way but we'd rather have, have uh, you know the freedom to do trade deals worldwide rather than have to get the EU's okay in advance yeah.
1: well I mean <sighs> and you can't blame them for that but yeah. I mean there's just so many facets to it and, and the people who are overreacting and there are people literally I a lot of my friends are are artsy people.
2: Yeah.
1: And, and you know, I, I don't want to say I'm not an artsy person, but I'm, I'm kind of different. Life changes you as you age. Your priorities become different.
2: Yeah.
1: And a lot of these people haven't grown up. And they're people who don't live in the UK or EU, and they're just like, oh, my God, they're selling out their future. How could...? And, and I just want to go, how do you know? Do you live there? You, you don't know.
0: It's, yeah, and, it's an and interesting. Nobody's got a crystal story. ball. Nobody knows what's gonna happen.
1: It's interesting to pick it apart, but you don't know until you've been there. Yep. That's that's the thing. I don't know. I just kinda wish people would see Oh stop uh, so some of the
0: fun. some of the lies after the exit were quite amazing as well. You had um, yeah, yeah, there was a big stock crash, um as as you'll be well aware of. Um Oh yes but you know people were going oh my god the uk's dropped from being the fixed, fifth biggest economy down to sixth wasn't true but all the newspapers reported it
1: of course they did yes. Yeah.
0: Yeah. they yeah. Don't... It dropped from fifth to sixth for about 12 hours and then the <laughs> stock recovered and yeah it was back where it was
2: i mean yeah you know. yeah
0: lots of money get yeah, lots of these financiers lost a shitload of money Good. But the world economy didn't really notice. Well, let me... <laughs> Individuals did, because they lost a lot of money. But, yeah, yeah worldwide it, it wasn't as big a thing as yeah, a lot of people were claiming it was. Well, of
2: course
1: they were.
0: Yeah, the pounds right. and the shitter still. Uh, but it's been in the shitter for quite a while anyway. So.
1: Well, it's also <laughs> for a fiat currency, it's also the oldest fiat currency. Yeah. To never... Like completely lose its value, so it's still got some life in it yet. It's not time to go completely digital, although I will say Brexit affected the digital currency market like crazy. Oh yeah, I've never seen prices of some of these things go as high as they did as quick as they did. Um, that that was something. It's something to watch because it, it now the market doesn't run on truth. It runs on rumor and innuendo. Yeah. And it runs the on
0: gambling, interesting... basically. It runs on people trying to predict what's going to happen next. Exactly. But so it the... goes all over the place.
1: It does. Kind of the neat thing for me, though, was reading Zero Hedge right up to the votes and how many of the banks were pulling their employees aside and telling them they had to vote to stay. Yeah. You know? oh that'll work that
0: that doesn't get that didn't get much of a mention in the media either it was well, in some places but yeah it wasn't just the banks it was lots of uh yeah. larger companies uh that yeah, were very absolutely. pro-eu were telling right, their employees mm, you should really vote this way no otherwise you might not have a job tomorrow you know yeah subtle hinting you know
1: subtle hinting and threats exactly and you know people always respond well to blackmail yeah.
0: Even the emotional kind, haha. Uh-huh. So okay. see, yeah, that was that was the thing. Yeah, they forgot the prime rule. British people do not like getting bullied. <laughs> <It's>, <laughs> we have a whole history of it. So when people were going, "Oh, it's terrible! All this bad stuff will happen." Really? Fuck you! <laughs> <It's>, <laughs> don't threaten me, you little twat. <laughs> that's well, that's one of the mistakes that the likes of Yoncod, Yonker made. Um and yeah. Uh, Schultz. Yeah, don't, don't threaten. <laughs> it's <laughs> really not going to work. <laughs> okay, I mean, yeah, so... I'm in Scotland and they voted to stay, but that's because... I don't know what's happened to Scotland. Really, I don't. Yes, I'm but... proud of being Scottish. I'm not okay. proud of Scottish people at the moment, though, because they're following the SNP round like sheep. It's It's quite sad. You
1: know, I think people... There comes a point where you go what are the trade-offs and is it worth it is it worth it to have to live like this you know what i mean to know that would be a little more secure and and a lot of people you know came to the conclusion that it was and and especially a lot of young people which i think is kind of sad um but that's also a testament to how they're educated another
0: another another thing that's developing uh, apparently, okay. Mr. Juncker might be being quietly retired soon.
1: So after yelling and screaming like a fool, like he did, get out, get out now!
2: Yeah.
0: yeah, Merkel's not happy, apparently.
1: Well, actually, I, it looks like. So, yeah, you know, he's what... trying
0: to force the issue, and she's like, N-ho-ho-ho-ho.
1: "Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly." It just seems to me that this this should be a wake-up call that. Everyone doesn't want every aspect of their life dictated well, to them by people they have no well, as control As I said
0: of. last week, yeah, there's all these, and it was mentioned in our article, there are an awful lot of national elections coming up in EU countries soon France, Germany, Italy. <laughs> Sp- Spain will probably still be having an election by the time the other countries have had their elections. Because, mm-hmm. um, yeah. yeah, Spain's a disaster at the minute. Yeah. They still don't have. I haven't looked today, but last I saw, they still didn't have a government. Um, <laughs> <laughs> they've had two elections in a year, but they still don't have a government.
1: Oh, <laughs> but
0: it's that bad.
1: Sometimes it happens.
0: Well, the first election was inconclusive, so for the next election, two two of the parties joined together in a coalition for the election to try and get in enough votes. And they still didn't get a majority. So, it's like...
2: uh, well, uh, you know.
1: I don't know if
0: they'll have a third election.
1: Sometimes, you know, people just don't feel the need to be governed, or they don't like the choices available to them. Now, I could completely go with um, not feeling the need to be governed. I, and yeah, I but, don't like the choices available.
0: Well, it's difficult in Spain because, as you know, it's it's it, it's it's heading towards Greek-like uh, problems. Well, it already has some of the problems. I mean, fifty percent <laughs> youth unemployment and the like. So yeah.
1: Well, I mean, I don't know. I mean, La Mazda? Do you remember
0: uh-huh.
1: the hologram protests? I mean, that's that's a sign of how it is. Yeah, because more
0: happen. than more than three people aren't allowed to congregate and protest. Yes.
1: Yeah. <laughs> fantastic isn't
0: it yeah they're going back to franco style uh, policies Yeah. yeah
1: well i mean and you wonder why people don't want to vote for anybody yeah okay um this is i don't know do i want to talk about the no fly list well we're on we're on the subject of the uk and the eu so let's move on to scotland and a little thing called uh what is what is the program called again Something milk white. Mm -hmm. Snowden disclosure prompts backlash in Scotland by Ryan Gallagher. Top government officials in Scotland are under pressure to explain their knowledge of police, a secretive police surveillance unit that was exposed in documents leaked by National Security Agency whistleblower Edward Snowden. On Tuesday, Cabinet Secretary for Justice Michelle Michael Matheson was grilled. In the country's parliament about the so-called scottish recording center and its previously undisclosed involvement in covert surveillance operations uh, as the intercept revealed last week the recording center is one of several domestic organizations within the united kingdom involved in a top secret program named milk white which has provided law enforcement agencies with access to bulk internet data intercepted by the british eavesdropping agency uh government communications headquarters or gchq prior to the disclosure few in scotland knew the recording center even existed much less that it had been tapping into gchq's tropes of data in recent days several scottish media outlets have picked up on the issue increasing pressure on the government questions about the revelations on tuesday matheson told the scottish parliament that the government takes the protection of our citizens' civil liberties extremely seriously and that we are clear the investigatory power should only be used when it's necessary and proportionate to do so. But we must always balance those fundamental civil liberties with the need to ensure our law enforcement bodies have effective powers to investigate and deal with serious organized crime. He declined to comment on any relationship with GCHQ and stated, that police must obtain a warrant signed off by the government minister to intercept communications. However, documents about the Milk program showed that it stores metadata about emails, instant messenger ch- chats, and social media activity, meaning it contains information that could reveal the sender and recipient of an email or message, but not the written content. And the police agencies in the UK do not require a warrant to access this kind of information. They only require a warrant when they want to monitor the content of communication for existence, the audio of a call, or the body of an email. Matheson's response, perhaps unsurprisingly, did not satisfy opposition politicians. John Feeney, a member of the Scottish Parliament representing the Green Party, said in a statement, The Cabinet Secretary today attempted to give the impression that all policing activities in Scotland are proportional and that interceptions are independently proved." but as we know, that is not always the case. There is clearly a culture of bulk collection of data that needs to be reined in. I will continue to challenge such overreaching activities. The revelation about the Reporting Center, the first from the Snowden Archive to implement and implicate Scotland's authorities, has put the Scottish National Party in an awkward spot. Just last week, the party's leadership took a strong stand against the UK's government push to obtain more surveillance powers through the controversial Investigatory Powers Bill dubbed the Snoopers Charter by critics. Joanna Cherry, the Scottish National Party's spokesperson on justice and home affairs, has raised concerns about the proposed new powers for bulk surveillance, which she blasted as being extremely intrusive. However, the Snowden documents about Milk White indicate that Scottish police forces through the recording center have been accessing bulk data for years presumably with sanctioned from top Scottish government ministers. Alistair Carmichael, a Liberal Democrat and Member of Parliament, was quick to point out that this inconsistency, and he has pledged to take up the issues surrounding the reporting centre and the Milk White program with the British government's Home Office in an attempt to obtain more information. In the House of Commons last week, former Scottish Minister, First Minister Alex Salmond voted with the Liberal Democrats against the Tories, moves that would see internet histories recorded and made available to the investigation services, Carmichael said. Now it seems that a center established when he was first minister was at the heart of the mass surveillance of our personal information. If it turns out the Scottish government claims it was not in fact aware of the Milk White program, Carmichael said it would raise big questions over the role of the UK intelligence services. And if it were aware and yet did nothing to raise the alarm, then we need to be told why They were happy for Scots to be left in the dark, he added. Scottish police and GCHQ have declined to answer questions about Milk White, citing policy not to comment on intelligence matters. The Home Office has also refused to comment, claiming that it never discusses anything derived from leaked documents.
0: Go ahead. Okay. (laughs) Yeah. The, yeah. Um... (laughs) SNP as I say don't like them I I, I voted nearly 20 years SNP and then I kind of went off them Uh, they are now basically Stalinist in their outlook despite their outward appearance so yeah, screw them (laughs) and yeah, stuff like this kind of proves it
1: well, I mean, all governments do it I mean, that's kind of their thing the bad part about the internet is now we're able to find this stuff out. It's not bad for us, <laughs> yeah. per se, but it's really bad for them. Yes, And that's a good thing. Like, I keep saying, you know, the more naked we are, they're twice as naked. And they're twice as vulnerable. They can't get up to this kind of stuff without people knowing now. Yeah.
0: But yeah, I mean, God, Alex Harmon. He's is, he is one of the slimiest people in the universe. Well,
1: he sounds like a lovely chap.
0: His hands are clammy. I've shook hands with him. Oh. I, well. I've come across him a couple of times in my life so far. Uh,
1: <laughs> I'm sorry.
0: <laughs> yeah, unfortunately, yeah, I've got a dodgy memory, but I don't forget that stuff. I, I, <laughs> I, I, yeah, I forget stuff that would be useful. <laughs> I don't
1: know, but I mean... Are people people have gotta be upset about this, right?
0: No, nobody's talking about it.
1: That's ridiculous. Did you not
0: look at the date on the article? No. <laughs> Brexit happened just after all this came out. Oh so, yeah. It's completely been forgotten about and
1: Oh. Well I bought it up again. I'm sorry. No, it's okay. So- sorry, Scotland, I I whoops.
0: Yeah, I mean they're too busy. Fuggering about wanting another independence referendum. Um,
1: how many referendums do you think they're going to call? I mean, how many do you think are going to be called about this EU thing? Or do you think they're really going to just go in? Because I know Germany and France well, hammered out some sort of agreement, and they want to take even more control of the EU. And, no, oh, and... no,
0: no, no, no. See, see that, that's that's why Juncker has fallen out with Merkel. It was Juncker that was pushing for Oh right, now because uh, the UK's left, right, we we need more cohesion. We've got to pull all the countries together. So it was him that was calling for it. It wasn't France and Germany at all. You... France and Germany were agreeing on things with each other, but you... then you had Juncker in the EU Parliament going, right. We'll push for everybody to be irrevocably linked together now, before right. anybody else escapes. And Merkel's <laughs> like, eh, what? Shut up. <laughs>
1: I mean maybe it's me but it, it something like this it, it's a trap um
0: yeah. so well interestingly uh, um Nicola Sturgeon our current first minister mm-hmm. Alex Salmon's prodigy and yeah she's annoying as well um <laughs> <laughs> she went over to the EU uh, to discuss Scotland right. please 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 let us stay please let us stay and about the only one who Talked to her was younger. Which is another reason why Merkel's annoyed at him. Because, yeah, the rest of the EU is kind of like, well, no, you're not actually a national <laughs> leader. So we don't have to talk to you. He's until kind of... Unless you break away from the UK and try and rejoin. He's, which he's case, I'll talk of, to you.
1: You
0: know, he's kind of, he's something. He's a nut. He's nutcase.
1: Yeah, well, he deserves to be retired
2: uh, or, you um, but know, yeah, I mean, the
0: Scottish politics is incredibly, incredibly stupid.
2: <laughs> it's, it's not, not just even your politics. <laughs> no, it's not. It's
0: not even. It's not even interesting or exciting. It's just stupid.
1: Hi, have you met me? I live in the United States. What do you think our politics is like?
0: Oh no, 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 no. You, I mean, you, you, I mean, you don't, you, you've let, seen some of the stuff coming out of Scotland. The yeah, the named person.
1: You got Lindsey Final Graham point. now, and Lindsey Graham—he's he, an annoying little shit.
2: Yeah.
1: He's a Republican, and he's like, if if Donald Trump gets the nomination, I'm becoming a Democrat. None of the Democrats want that little bastard. Nobody yeah. wants Lindsey Graham. I, I, even yeah, he seems to be. Yeah,
0: people like that seem to forget the Democrats could say no and. They don't have to accept him (laughs) they can go no we don't want you go away
1: (laughs) i would love to see lindsey graham try to run as an independent i don't think we have a fascist party in the united states but oh
0: you probably do you just never heard of it because it's not big enough um
1: (laughs) well maybe he could run on that ticket that might be a good ticket for him because yeah
0: the thing about being in the uk i mean we we have hundreds of political parties but yeah, outside local areas, you don't hear about them much. And the have, US is kind of like that. We
1: have 12, But on a bigger scale. We have 12, I think. We even have like the Neo Nazi Party.
0: Oh, yeah, we got a couple I found of
1: them. I yeah. found that out, like my skin started crawling. I was like, oh, don't get me Every wrong. Every
0: country's know. got a Neo Nazi Party. I know. Some of them have nice names, like, you know, Greece has Golden Dawn. I mean, <laughs> it's like a really nice name for a political party till you find out what they are. And you're like, oh my god.
1: (laughs) A lot of people don't do due diligence, I guess. Maybe that was the
0: name. The swastikas are usually a giveaway, though.
1: Yeah, but... Never mind. I mean,
0: okay. If you're outside the Indian subcontinent, there's only one thing a swastika means. (laughs) Right. Well, I know.
1: But here... You know, here's the thing. I've seen, like, the late-night shows around here, they send out... One of the interns with a microphone and they ask him questions. Um, what freaked me out was the amount of people my age who had no idea who Adolf Hitler was
0: in my concert. Well, that You shouldn't should... be surprised. Do you know how shit education is these days?
1: I know exactly how bad it is. I know exactly how hard I had ed- educate myself to even be competent to talk about some of these things about money or politics. Just competent. I'm not even good. I'm like barely passable and I know it. But I had to educate myself hard in my 40s, in my 30s to get to this point. A lot of people don't have the time. I understand that they're working a couple jobs, you know, they're trying to keep their heads above water. Um, You know, the new Justin Bieber album just dropped. I don't know. But whatever. Um, Everybody has things, but not knowing who Hitler is, and, and being a college graduate, that scared
0: me. We 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 had a lot of that coming up you know, after the Brexit, with, as you say, the young people complaining. And then things being pointed out to them. It's like, <laughs> all the freedoms you've got are due to these older people that you are saying you dislike so much. And... They didn't have to have you, you know. (laughs) That's the best reminder. It's like, you do know these people had children and their children (laughs) had you. (laughs) So, shut up. But I mean,
1: (laughs) mean, actually, this is kind of a cycle thing. This is kind of what happens. You you have children of war that have children that, generally speaking, when it's not like a, a war that never stops like it is now... Um, they tend to have better education and a better lot in life and not to have to work as hard and as many hours and they can do more. And so their views on raising their children are very different. They're not raised with the same traditions and the like, and they don't get the same sort of educational opportunities. It, it's It's very, it's all a cycle. All of yeah. this is a cycle. It's it's happened before. It'll happen again. I keep saying it, but uh, anyway, uh, I'm oh, gonna
0: oh, read. best best complaint, right? I, I heard, and this wasn't a young person. This is a middle, okay. somebody about my age, I think a bit younger, but he he wanted to stay in the EU, and yeah, it was a business thing. Cause you know him and his son, you know they have this business, and they're contractors, mm-hmm. and. Oh, it'd be really difficult to keep my company going if I have to keep applying for visas to get jobs because it takes weeks to get visas so I wouldn't just be able to jump to another country and do a job and you're like okay, so what you're saying is your company can't really survive globalisation properly <laughs> it can only survive when it has regulations that are that, that allow it, it to work so your business is shit
1: <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> I, I think a lot of businesses probably, without protectionism in the form yeah. <laughs> of it, would fail. I mean, and
0: that's but no, 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 shorter. no. no bit, and I'm yeah. not talking
1: about just banks. I'm talking about companies in oh, every yeah. country, every city.
0: That's it. So he was, yeah. This guy was obviously really angry when exit got, got voted in. That's gonna. That's ruined my plans for the future. So. So. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's like, you know, you're maybe, one guy. Maybe I'm I don't just give a crazy. shit. <laughs> maybe I'm
1: just crazy. But, so? Yeah. I mean, you wanted, your
0: plans. To,
1: you wanted to live in a democracy but you never wanted to be offended again? You're an idiot. Um, yeah. Okay. This is a story about someone who was on the no-fly list for four years. I'm a former Marine who was on the no-fly list for four years and I still don't know why. After recent mass shootings in San Bernardino, California and Orlando, Florida, members of both parties in Congress have called for a no-fly, no-buy, a bill that would allow the federal government to bar people on the Transportation Security Administration's no-fly list from purchasing guns. To supporters, the proposal seems straightforward. If you're a known or suspected terrorist who's too dangerous to board a plane, you're too dangerous to buy a gun. To critics, it's a reminder of the problems with the no-fly list itself. Abe Marshall, a 36-year-old veteran and dog trainer, knows those problems all too well. You're on the no-fly list, the woman at the kiosk told me. It was a Wednesday six years ago at Midway Airport in Chicago. I was traveling to Spokane, Washington for my job as a dog trainer. I had absolutely no idea how I could have ended up on the no-fly list. I waited for Ashton Kutcher to come out and tell me I was being punked. No luck. At least 30 federal agents formed me. They didn't handcuff or manhandle me, but the sheer number of them was intimidating. I was in a state of shock, looking at them confusedly. Their expressions turned puzzled too when they noticed my Marine Corps shirt. But being a veteran didn't save me. The mob of agents led me into a private room for questioning. I was certain there was a mix-up and I wanted answers. How did this happen? When could I fly again? How did I end up on the list? Even if I knew the answers, I wouldn't be able to tell you, said one FBI agent. The questioning at the airport was brief and eventually they let me go but it was just the beginning of a hellacious four years of anxiety and uncertainty. I thought I could negotiate myself off the list until the feds asked me to be an informant. I drove home to tell my wife the awful news that I'd been added to the no-fly list for some reason unknown to me. A mere 15 minutes later, I got a phone call. It was two federal agents asking if they could stop by my house to talk. I couldn't really refuse. That's when the interrogation really began. Who's your father? Who's your mother? What's your religion? My mom's Italian and my father's Palestinian. You can guess which parent they were more concerned with. I'm Muslim, which opened up a whole other line of invasive questions, including whether I used social media, whether I communicated with people outside of the United States frequently, and the number of bank accounts I had. What only lasted for an hour and a half felt like an eternity. Officials were leapfrogging over my right to due process. For a few months, there was radio silence from law enforcement. And out of the blue, I got a random call again from the same two agents. They invited me to Chicago for lunch and to answer any questions I had. The only question I had was if I was off the list. The conversation seemed hopeful, so I agreed to meet them. They met me in their hotel lobby and invited me upstairs. There was no lunch. We can get you off the list today, they said. One caveat. They would get me off the list if I agreed to become an informant at Mosques. I'm no James Bond. I have a wife and four kids. Why would I go undercover as a bargaining deal to be taken off a list when I hadn't done anything wrong in the first place? I thought that in a few months, the government would realize they made a mistake about me. The encounter in the hotel room was a breaking point. I contacted the American Civil Liberties Union and lawyered up. I lost thousands of dollars on my business and missed weddings and funerals. The worst part about being on the 81,000-person no-fly list, which the government says is intended to keep known or suspected terrorists from boarding commercial flights, is that I may never know why I was on the list. Until last year, the only way for Americans to find out if they were on the list was to suffer the embarrassment of being barred from boarding their flight. I was allowed a lot of hearing in which I could make my case or even ask why I was being banned from flying. The federal government says it uses reasonable suspicion to determine if someone should be on the list. In other words, I may have been placed on the list because the government was suspicious of me, but they wouldn't tell me why. Officials were leapfrogging over my rights as a U.S. citizen to have due process under the law or right I defended when I served in this country as a Marine. Being blacklisted by the federal government hurt my business and my personal life. My job as a traveling dog trainer was limited to bookings I could drive to in and around Illinois. My ads were posted nationwide, so I constantly had to turn down clients who lived beyond driving distance being limited to where I could drive to work translated into the loss of thousands of dollars. Family vacations were ruined. What would have a two hour flight what would have been a two hour flight to Orlando when I took the kids to Disney World turned into a two day car ride. I missed out on other important events. My sister's graduation in Hawaii. I couldn't take a boat there. The wedding of a fellow Marine in Boston. The funeral of a family friend from high school. My loved ones understood why I couldn't make it but those are all memories I missed out on, that can't be duplicated. What it felt like to fly again. After the court ruled against the government in my lawsuit, officials finally disclosed that I was no longer on the no-fly list, in a court filing dated October 2014, and only four years after that terrible day at Midway. But it also made clear I could be added back any time, today or tomorrow, without any notice, and without telling me the reasons why and I still have never been given an answer for why I ended up on the list. I exercised my newfound freedom and booked a trip to New York City with my son. We visited the Statue of Liberty. It reminded me of the values this country stands for. As of late, I've been able to keep my business going, but I'm still frustrated by those four years. I know I'm innocent. The no-fly list is inherently flawed. I didn't do anything wrong, but I was on the list for years. I took a major lawsuit to get confirmation that I'd been taken off the list, how many other innocent people have been blacklisted and removed. It's like the powers that be are playing games with people's lives. For four years, I was presumed guilty until I was proven innocent. Despite the questions I answered for officials, mine has never been answered. Why? That's the problem with the No Fly List. Yeah. But that's been a problem for a really long time. And it's been I've a problem as a long as it's
0: existed. Yeah.
1: Exactly. I've been a really big critic of critic of it for a long time if you believe the government exists to keep you safe that that is their main goal and their main purpose in life and their job and not your job then you have to wonder at the wiseness of such a list you know um that there have to be other ways to do that without being so stasi. Style in what they're doing. Yeah. So, like I said, I don't believe that it's the government's job to keep me safe. I don't.
0: It's the government's and, and job to keep the government safe.
1: Exactly. The government's job is to grow itself like any good corporation. So, happy Fourth of July, y'all. <laughs>
0: Splitters. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
1: And that, that, believe it or not, that was every story. I didn't think we would do a two-hour show tonight, but uh, I was not giving up any portion of the audio before it was going to cut me off.
0: Yeah.
2: Tonight, just saying.
0: But yeah, here's here's the way my mind works. It's the 4th of July. It's your Independence Day. (laughs) It's like, yep, party while you can. With the candidates you've got for president, yeah, might be the last chance.
1: I really hope Elizabeth
0: not. isn't quite looking so bad now, is she?
1: You know what? I <laughs> I, I don't like any of them. They're all CIA puppets. Yeah. CIA's got their hand up their butts, forcing them to say whatever. I, I just oh, don't trust uh, them.
0: Yeah, uh, he, Yeah, we should mention, yeah, in the UK, Conservative Party. Boris, Boris is not standing for leadership.
1: Boris looks terrible. He looks like Nick Nolte.
0: Yeah. But we have uh, the candidates. Yeah. It's gonna be. It's probably gonna be one of the two women. Uh, <laughs> Gove's, me- Gove's got no chance. Uh, it's gonna be May or Andrea. What's her face?
1: Theresa May.
0: Mike, Crabb's got an outside chance.
1: Theresa May? Really? Yeah. The woman who sold all your civil liberties down Mm -hmm. the toilet, and she's leading in the polls. Really? People are dumber than I thought.
0: I mean, this is conservatives voting for conservatives, so yeah.
1: It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if it's liberals voting for liberals. I mean, but yeah, Go- still Gove's, n- Gove's not
0: going to win because he spent years repeatedly saying, "I, I, I don't want to be leader. I don't have the skills to be leader." And then suddenly he's gone. I want to be leader. <laughs> people are like, "Fuck off." Um, the other male candidate, well, the other male candidates, Stephen Crabb. He's a recent addition to the cabinet. He was oh. the Minister of Wales and then got moved to Justice or whatever. Uh, no, he took over from IDS. Sorry, at Work and Pensions. He, he's the mad Christian who thinks you can cure uh, gayness. Oh, um,
2: well, he'll go for. Her.
0: Yeah, he's not going to get in. funnily enough, uh, Jeremy Hunt. <laughs> yeah, veteran yeah.
1: soldier NHS.
0: Yep. Piece by
2: piece.
0: And me. And so that basically means it's going to be one of the two women, right? <laughs> I. Both are career politicians. May's the one everybody knows. Andrea, mm-hmm. what's her face, uh, is high up in the Conservative Party, but she's never been one of the faces in front of the camera very much. So yeah, Recently. but she's she uh, that's who Boris is supporting. Oh, good Lord. is the less well-known one. But yeah, so yeah, the Conservatives continue to argue with themselves. <laughs> <laughs> um, Labour still haven't managed to get rid of Corbyn, uh, and and have shot themselves in the foot. The Blairites really are in trouble, because Corbyn didn't just roll over. He's going no, no, no. Yeah, yeah. You voted no confidence, but you you can have to call a leadership election. And of uh-huh. course, if there's a leadership election because he didn't step down his name's automatically on the voting list for the next (laughs) leadership. And he'll probably win it again because it's the public that support, you know, it's the party membership that support him, not the MPs. It's the MPs that are trying to get rid of him because they're all blairites. Chilcot report in a couple of days. So, yeah, Labour Party's screwed and all. So, yeah. You
1: know... Sometimes I think it'd just be easier to go, fuck it.
0: Oh, we'll oh. all
1: promise to be really cool.
0: Oh, and here's a good laugh go for you. The SMP did try and table a motion for it to be considered the official opposition party. Really? Since Labour was falling to pieces. Yeah, it didn't get picked up funnily enough. But <laughs> it's <just> like, really? <laughs> I know you've got all the Scottish constituencies, <laughs> That's not that many constituencies. <laughs>
2: not... Yeah, I mean, politics... now, Scotland's
0: a big country but hasn't got a lot of counties, as it were, so constituencies. Mm-hmm. So it doesn't have that many MPs. Because no, we you have know, a small population. We've only it got like really... 6 million people.
1: It, mm-hmm. it really is very different now that exiting the EU has been voted I mean, it's going to be the kind of election you guys haven't seen in a while. You know, it's going to be one where people actually... their choices actually sort of count.
0: Well, I'm going to... Hopefully people will be able to see this if they're on. I'm going to share an image with chat. And it's a... it, It is a very clever reference to... (laughs) <laughs> Current.
1: Strange woman lying in ponds, distributing swords as a form of government, is starting to sound like the better option of what we have of the choice now.
0: See, film reference.
1: Yes. Mm-hmm. Very, very clever.
0: Holy grail. Yeah.
1: <laughs> I guess that's it for tonight, guys. I mean, I can hear fireworks going off here, and I'm sure everybody who actually listened... Report. No, it might
0: just might just be a SWAT team doing a yeah, car stop. Uh,
1: God, I hope not. Although I did want to mention something about the TSA, um, <laughs> and I don't know why I feel compelled to mention this, but I think everyone's aware of the fact that they're just doing random train checks in random subway checks, but uh, they're also going to be, you know along the highways soon looking at people in their cars so that's fortunate there's no way to get out of their way and the other reason that I mentioned this was that young girl the one who was like blind and deaf that the TSA beat ever so gently at the airport I guess her yeah. family's actually won a lawsuit against them
0: Well, I'd hope so, yeah. I mean, the the pictures of her bloodied face are, well, all over the media. Um,
1: Well, they are all over the media, and it's pretty freaking horrific because she had just had brain surgery. And they do shit like this, and they don't listen. So, You know, much like the entity of government they are, they do what government does, and they don't listen. So, Again, happy 4th of July. I hope everybody who is an american listener enjoy their hot dogs and their barbecues their beer and looking at the pretty fireworks i don't get to enjoy any of that i'm uh getting up early to go to work so if you had a three-day weekend or i guess is it called it's called in your country a bank holiday three-day weekend bank holiday is that correct yeah
0: sometimes Uh, we have four day ones
1: Mm -hmm. uh, now you're just making me sad I, I hope you enjoyed your time and have a really good night thanks for listening guys
2: see you next Monday